Francis Chan said, God doesn't call us to be comfortable. He calls us to trust him so completely that we're unafraid to put ourselves in situations where we will be in trouble if he doesn't come through. You know, this life, this life that we're all living on earth is not a destination. It is a journey. And it matters that we recognize that because all along the way on this journey, there are obstacles that exist to try and keep us from reaching our destination. And listen, although some of those obstacles are easy to spot for what they are, you know, obvious barriers to keep us from progressing on our way, some of those obstacles aren't always so easy to recognize as obstacles. In fact, some of the obstacles that you will face in your life look like destinations. They look like nice places to stay, to settle, to get comfortable in, to the point you stop making any forward progress at all because it's easier to stay where you are than it is to keep pushing forward past that place where you've settled in your life. But listen, this one lifetime that each of us has given on this earth is not our destination. It is a journey on the way to our destination. And in fact, it is the journey that prepares us for our destination, which means there's great purpose in the journey, certainly. But the journey is not the end in itself. It is rather a means to an end. Referring to Christians in this world, Hebrews 13, 14 says here, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. This place is not our destination. Unfortunately, a lot of people lose sight of that truth along the way for a couple of different reasons. The first reason is because of obstacles that look like destinations. We become enamored with this world to the point that we stop moving, we stop progressing, we stop working our way toward the destination and then we wonder why we have this constant nagging sense of dissatisfaction with our lives as if there's something more, but we can't find it. Well, there is something more. A lot more. But if you stop moving toward it, you're going to become dissatisfied eventually with your life because you've settled on the path instead of using the path to continue moving you to the place you are meant to be. The other big reason that people stop moving forward, stop progressing in this life, is because of obstacles that are obvious barriers, seemingly impossible barriers to overcome. And of course, we all face them from time to time and they come in all different shapes and sizes and some are much more difficult to overcome than others, right? There are certainly times when you arrive at an obstacle in life, but you know that through enough thought and creativity, you can go over or get around or go through that obstacle. It's just a matter of some ingenuity and time and effort. But there are other kinds of obstacles, like really big ones the intimidating kind, the ones that are impossible to go over or get around or get through. It's those obstacles that can stop us dead in our tracks. And if we're not careful in how we respond, they can keep us there at a standstill, no longer moving forward indefinitely until we settle for something far less than what God created us for. I have friends who have gone through some pretty horrible things because of other people. And because of those experiences, they've allowed unforgiveness to become such a big obstacle, they can no longer move forward in life. 
They get stuck in one place, unable to get past the unforgiveness in their own heart. And I'll just tell you, there's nothing that will stop your forward progress, your spiritual growth, your ability to become what God put you on this earth to become. Nothing will halt that progress quicker than unforgiveness. I know people who've stopped pursuing the calling that God has given them to pursue because of some situation or circumstance along the way that stopped them in their tracks. And so they've settled right where they are, unable to overcome that obstacle because it's so big. It's so big that overcoming it seems impossible. So they forfeit the life that God intended for them. They miss out on the fullness of a life spent pursuing Jesus Christ and his plans for them because they've settled on the other side of an obstacle that seems impossible to overcome. For some, it's a broken relationship, a divorce, maybe. For some, it's guilt, shame from their past mistakes. For some, it's a lack of resources. They don't have what they need to move forward. For some, it's a set of unfavorable circumstances, maybe an issue with their health or someone in their life who's holding them back. We can go on and on about the obstacles that people face, obstacles that seem impossible to overcome to the point that people stop pursuing their calling. They stop pursuing the dream that God gave them. They stop moving forward and begin to treat where they are as their final destination because going any further seems an impossibility. The result of that is you have a lot of people who have settled for a lot less than all that God has prepared for them. So I just, I just want you to know today, if there's a nagging feeling that you experience ongoing, a feeling that there's something more for you, something beyond where you are now, some greater measure of calling yet to be fulfilled in your life. Listen, that feeling is probably there because there is something more for you, some place for you to go beyond where you are now, a greater measure of calling that has yet to be fulfilled in your life. Because this life is a journey, a journey that we're meant to travel through, always advancing, always progressing, always moving toward our destination, which means if we stop moving forward and settle for something less than what God created us for, you can expect an accompanying sense of dissatisfaction or unfulfillment to go along with that decision to settle. That would be quite natural. And to be honest, this is a bigger problem than I think we realize. I think it's a, a widespread dilemma in the modern church era where Christians have settled for something less than what God has intended and the result is scores of people who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ, Christians, who are at the same time wholly unsatisfied with their lives. Christians walking around who are completely dissatisfied with their life. You understand those two states of being really shouldn't exist together. I'm not saying that followers of Jesus Christ will never experience periods of discouragement or frustration or even dissatisfaction. We're all human beings living in an imperfect world that can at times discourage us and frustrate us and cause us to be dissatisfied in certain circumstances. That's a fact of life. I'm talking about people who say they're actively following Jesus Christ, people who, who believe in and put their faith in Christ, 
Christians who are at the same time dissatisfied with their lives on the whole, people who are struggling to find meaning and purpose for their lives, Christians who are constantly trying to fill that void with themselves, within themselves, with things like material things or new relationships or new distractions to give them some sense of purpose while simultaneously professing to be following Christ's leading in their lives. You understand there's something desperately wrong with that picture because following Jesus Christ is the most purposeful life you could ever live. Following him is a challenge to be sure. It's not easy and the obstacles along the way can be seemingly impossible at times to overcome and all of that can be really tough, really hard. But when you're truly in step with his leading in your life, listen, you won't wonder why you were put here on this earth. Your life won't feel worthless or pointless. You won't need to try and fill it with other things and you won't feel like you're missing out on something more because following Jesus Christ is the ultimate journey and it is ultimately fulfilling and satisfying and purposeful because you're constantly moving one step closer to your destination, so it never gets old and it never becomes pointless. Which begs the question, why then are there Christians who are wholly dissatisfied with their lives, who feel like there's no point, like they're living without a real purpose, because there are a lot of them in our churches today. The answer is, at least for many of them, that although they may truly believe in Jesus Christ, I'm not saying they don't, but they've encountered obstacles in their lives which they're convinced are either better destinations than the one God has prepared for them or they're obstacles that are impossible to overcome and as a result, although they believe in Jesus, they've stopped following Jesus. They've stopped moving forward. They've settled for far less than what they were created for and now this world, the place that was meant to be their journey has become their destination. The problem with that is this world is never gonna satisfy you in fact, it was never intended to. And so the only way we can experience that purposeful, fulfilling satisfaction that only comes by following Jesus Christ, even when facing impossible circumstances, is by overcoming the impossible, never settling for anything less than God's best. It's finding a way to break through those obstacles that have stopped us dead in our tracks and kept us from following him into the life we were created for which happens to be what our story is about today as we continue our sermon series, working our way through the book of Joshua, where God's people were so overcome by obstacles in their journey to the promised land that they stalled out in the wilderness for a very long time, settling for something far less than God's best. And yet now, finally, they've made a decision to once again Trust God's leading, even as they approach what seems to be another impossible obstacle between where they are and where they need to be. And so Joshua, their leader under the command of God, walks them through the process of overcoming the seemingly impossible obstacles before them. And, and listen, the instruction is as useful today for us as it was for them then. So let's read it together and see what we can glean from this story for our own lives. We'll start where we left off last time at Joshua chapter 3. We'll begin by reading the first six verses. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. 
At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priest, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priest, Take up the ark of the covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the ark of the covenant and went before the people. Okay, so there's a lot going on in these first six verses here, as we'll see. Joshua leads the people from their encampment east of the Jordan toward Jericho, which is the first city they will encounter in the promised land. This is the land that God had prepared and set aside for them since he first made the promise to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12. So the fulfillment of this promise, first of all, has been a long time coming, including over 400 years in captivity in Egypt and another 40 years wandering around the wilderness. But finally, the people of God are ready to take possession of the promise, their calling, their purpose, the dream that God had given them, and yet no sooner do they pack everything up and begin to finally move in that direction. They arrive at the River Jordan, an obstacle between them and the promise, an obstacle so big it would seem impossible to overcome. Okay? First of all, under normal circumstances, the River Jordan was a formidable barrier. It runs through a deep gorge all the way to the Dead Sea, 1,286 feet below sea level. That's an average drop of nine feet in elevation per mile, but in places it drops over 40 feet per mile, which means this is a really deep, extremely fast flowing river gorge so that even for just a couple of spies, as we saw in the last part of the story, there was only a very small place where they could navigate their way across the fords of the Jordan. But this wasn't This wasn't a couple of spies secretly, slowly, and carefully picking their way across the narrow fords in the river. This was over two and a half million men, women, and children, along with their livestock and personal belongings, facing a river that was dramatically swollen. In fact, it was at full flood stage at this point in the story because of the spring rains and the annual snow melt from Mount Hermon, which caused the river to be considerably deeper and wider and faster during the time of harvest, March and April, which we'll learn in verse 15 uh, is when this was taking place. And so here they stand on the opposite side of a raging torrent from where they're meant to be. How in the world would millions of people and everything they own Little children, animals, right, pulling carts and tools, all of their belongings, possibly get across this obstacle to the place God was calling them to. The fact is there wasn't enough ingenuity or effort in the world to figure out a way over or around it in the amount of time that God was calling them to cross it. This raging river had stopped the people of God dead in their tracks, and without the supernatural intervention of an almighty God, they weren't going anywhere. But notice, this isn't a moment of hesitation for Joshua. He's not scratching his head wondering if they're going to make it across this impossible obstacle because he understands that every impossible obstacle in his life has already been overcome by God. It's why Jesus said to his disciples in this world, you'll have tribulation, but take heart. I've overcome the world. John 16, In other words, in this life, you're going to encounter 
obstacles. But take heart. That's a key phrase, by the way. We'll come back to it. Take heart because I've overcome those obstacles for you already. Joshua understood that if God calls you to something, then he will provide a way to that calling no matter what obstacles you face. So he just continues giving them instructions even though their progress had stopped. He says, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priest, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it about 2,000 cubits in length. Don't come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you've not passed this way before. Okay, normally the sons of Kohath or the Kohathite branch of the Levites were tasked with carrying the Ark of the Covenant as set out in Numbers 4.15. But here the priests are told to carry the ark because God was about to do something very special. He was about to overcome the impossible. So Joshua tells the congregation to stay 2,000 cubits away from the ark once it began to move. Look, a, a cubit, first of all, was, it's about the length of your fingertips, a man's fingertips to his elbow. It's about 18 inches, which means 2,000 cubits was over a half a mile in distance, which would have been a very familiar length, by the way, to the Jews because that was also the radius of pasture land that was set out around Levitical towns, which we find in Numbers 35.5. It was also the maximum distance determined by Jewish rabbis to be acceptable for a person to travel on the Sabbath, which is based on Exodus 16.29, where the people were not to leave their 2,000 cubit area every Sabbath. The point is, when Joshua says, stay 2,000 cubits away from the ark, everyone would have understood very naturally what that distance looked like. So he wasn't asking anything unreasonable or unnatural for the Israelites to comply with. And the reason for the 2,000 cubit distance was as much practical as it was spiritual. And we know the ark was not to be trifled with uh, as it was the very representation of God among his people. But the reason for this command, do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. The reason is so the whole larger group of people could physically see the ark leading the way because they'd never been this way. They didn't know where they were going. So if you think about it, if they all crowded around very closely to the ark, only those very close in the crowd to the ark would be able to see it. But if you separated a half a mile from the group of people, then the much larger group would be able to keep it in sight and know the way to go. And so all of this instruction by Joshua is to prepare the people to overcome this impossible obstacle. And yet the most important instruction by far comes in verse 5 when Joshua tells the people to consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. To consecrate yourself meant extensive preparations personally for every single one of them. It involved prayer, repentance of sins, fasting from certain foods, self-denial, abstaining from sexual relations, purifying yourself, washing your garments, right? In other words, God is about to do something otherwise impossible in your life. So before you take one more step, take some time to prepare your heart. I'm certain there must have been a lot of talk among the people leading up to this moment. Uh, they're about to enter the promised land. They're about to take possession of all that God had promised them. They've been wandering around in the desert for 40 years. And now they're finally leaving the wilderness and entering their destiny. You imagine the talk among the people, the excitement. And yet the moment they arrive at the Jordan... This deep, 
wide, raging river that they now understand they have to cross to take possession of the promise. Many of them, I think, for many of them, the conversation leading up to that moment must have seemed like a lot of hollow talk all of a sudden, seeing firsthand this insurmountable obstacle before them. Can you just imagine their hearts sinking in their chests when they realize that their calling is on the other side of that river? And so Joshua says, look, it's time to prepare your hearts for what God's about to do, because right now you're not ready. You understand, if you're facing obstacles in your life today, circumstances that stand directly between you and what God has called you to, it's, it's easy to become discouraged, I know. It's easy to see how impossible overcoming that obstacle may be, which is why it's critical that we take pause along this journey when facing impossible obstacles to take time to prepare our hearts for what God wants us to do in our lives. Because the fact is, he's already overcome the obstacle. It's why Jesus said in this world, you'll have tribulation, but take heart. I've overcome the world. The phrase take heart in the ancient Greek is the word tharseo. It means to have courage. Jesus knew that the obstacles in our lives would discourage us. So he said, when you face those obstacles, you can actually take courage because I've already overcome it for you. See, when we face impossible situations in life, God, when you're facing an impossible situation in your life, God doesn't need time to prepare for it. You do. You need to get your heart in line with his. You need to consecrate yourself. You're the one who needs to prepare your heart so that when he tells you to move, you're ready to move. See, an awful lot of people, I'm talking about Christians, we don't do that. We, we come to a screeching halt when confronted by a, a great obstacle in our lives and then we wonder why we can't overcome it. Yet all the while our hearts are full of things like hurt and bitterness and unforgiveness and doubt and fear and shame and pride and unbelief and we wonder why we're not making any progress. Precisely why, by the way, he allows impossible obstacles in our lives to begin with. Because they force us to stop and evaluate ourselves. That's the whole point, to prepare our hearts to move into the next season of our lives that he's calling us to because often God won't allow you to walk into the fullness of all that he's created for you if your heart is in rebellion against his. He allowed the Israelites to flounder around in the wilderness for 40 years. Why? He, he could have led them directly into the promised land from, uh, from Egypt. Why did he allow them to flounder in the wilderness for 40 years? Because their hearts weren't ready to enter the promised land. And likewise, we run into these obstacles that force us to have to stop what we're doing and evaluate our own hearts. You understand these obstacles are actually often a great act of grace in your life by our Father who loves you enough to give you the time you need to pause and then prepare your heart for the next step. And the way we do that today is much like the way they did it then. We take time to pray, to fast, to repent if need be, to deny ourselves, to purify our hearts before Him, and then to dedicate our lives and our future to Him. So that when the time comes to begin moving forward, we're ready to face that obstacle that He's already overcome. Listen, there's this tendency, anytime we face a great obstacle in our life, to focus on the obstacle. 
We all do it. We focus on the obstacle instead of focusing on Christ and what he's trying to do in our own hearts. Because, listen, the key to overcoming obstacles is generally not a change in the obstacle. We think it is. We want the obstacle removed. We want something to change about the obstacle so that while we remain exactly the same, we can go right through it or over it or around it. No. The key to overcoming obstacles is usually not a change in the obstacle itself. It's a change in us. And then God makes a way over or around or through the obstacle. The Israelites could have sat by that, listen, the Israelites could have sat by that river for 40 more years trying to think up a way around it. But focusing on the obstacle was not going to get them any closer to the other side. It was focusing on God and what he was doing in their own hearts that prepared them to overcome the obstacle, which should always be our first approach to every barrier in our own lives today. Father, I see this thing here. I'm not even going to look at that. I'm going to look at you. What do you want to change in me? What hurt or unforgiveness do I need to let go of? What fears or failures do I need to let go of? What sin do I need to repent of? What faith do I need to hold on to? What is in my own heart that needs to change? Because overcoming the impossible will always require our hearts to be aligned with his first. Let's keep reading verses 7 through 13. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Parasites, the Girgashites, uh, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each man a tribe. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down shall stand in one heap. So Joshua gathers the people and he says, listen up. Here's how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out before you all of your enemies. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Translation, if you're going to overcome the impossible, then wait for God to move. Back in verse 3, Joshua said, as soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priest, then... You shall set out from your place and follow it. Not a moment before. And then here in verses 10 and 11, he explains that the way they'll be able to overcome their enemies is by the presence of God going before them. And then in verse 13, he says, When the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. In other words, wait on God to move because he's about to overcome the impossible for you. So don't you step one foot into that river unless God is with you. 
Okay, look, maybe, I don't know, maybe if the two and a half million Israelites had bull rushed the river all at once, I don't know, maybe some of them would have made it across. Maybe if they'd taken all their belongings and threw them in the river or built some kind of makeshift bridge and climb over top of each other, maybe some of them could have made it across the river single file, maybe. But do you know what would have happened? Anyone that did make it across would have been killed one by one by their enemies on the other side. If you take two and a half million people single file and figure one person crossing over the river every second, which is impossible, but just for the sake of argument, if they move that quickly and you did that day and night, 24 hours a day, it would take 29 days for all of them to make it across. A month, all the while their enemies picking them off one by one. You see, those seven enemy nations we just read listed in verse 10, those same nations are all listed in Deuteronomy 7.1 where they're also described as more numerous and mightier than the Israelites. That's why Joshua called together the 40,000 armed elite military men of the Transjordanian tribes we talked about before to go before them to be the first to cross before the rest of the people to protect the others from a possible attack during the crossing when they would be most vulnerable with their little ones and all their belongings with them. You see, their strength was in their numbers. And the only way for those 40,000 fighting men to cross over altogether was for something miraculous to happen because this obstacle was otherwise impossible to overcome. And Joshua knew that. So he told the people to wait for God to move first. Then verse 13, for the first time in the story, the people are told what God will do for them if they wait on him to move on their behalf. Joshua says, when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. The word heap that's used to describe the waters there that are being held back is a really important word. In the ancient Hebrew, it's the word nade. It means piling up like a mound or a wave. It's the exact same word used both in Exodus 15, 18 and Psalm 78, 13 that described the parting of the Red Sea when the Israelites were delivered from Egypt. And the reason that's so important is because there are people who dispute that this crossing of the Jordan was actually a supernatural event. But Joshua clearly describes it as such as he compares it directly to the event at the Red Sea. We'll come back to that later. The point for now is this. Joshua was informing the people that God was about to do something impossible, supernatural. He was about to part the waters and create a way for them to cross into the promised land altogether where there was otherwise no way to do that. But it could only happen if they waited for God to move first. Okay, anytime we're facing insurmountable obstacles in our lives, doing the wrong thing is just as bad is doing nothing. And getting ahead of God is always the wrong thing. In fact, we'll see that in this story in the weeks to come. To move ahead of God and His timing when you're facing great obstacles in your life is to invite disaster upon yourself. Because when you move ahead of God or outside of His will, you're opening yourself up to the attacks of the enemy. Right? Just like if they had bull rushed the river, tried to pick their way across it one by one. But people do this all the time. They come up against something in their lives and instead of waiting on God to guide them through it, to go before them, they take matters into their own hands and inevitably end up far worse off than if they just stayed where they were. 
People enter into relationships with other people outside of the will and guidance of God all the time. Why? Because they're tired of being lonely. And so instead of waiting for God to lead them into the relationship that he has prepared for them, they rush into something that ends in disaster because they got ahead of God. Likewise, people leave relationships instead of waiting on God to move on their behalf in that relationship, and they miss out on all that God had planned for them. We have to remember when facing obstacles in relationships, in jobs, in big decisions in life, there's always a time to wait for God to move. And while we're waiting, that is when we prepare our hearts. That's when we move toward him to align our hearts with his so that when he says, okay, now it's time to move, then we're actually ready to move, but not before and not without his guidance. Let's finish the story for today. Verse 14 to the end. So when the people set out, from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people. And as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan and the feet of the priest bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water. Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathon. And those flowing down toward the Sea of Ereba, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. So finally, after many long years of wandering and waiting, the impossible is made possible as the people of God cross over the river Jordan into the promised land. Joshua says, as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan and the feet of the priest bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathon, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. The city Adam mentioned here, uh, by the way, is the modern city, Demaya. It's about 18 miles north of the fords of the Jordan. So God stops the water almost 20 miles upstream probably to create a wide enough area of dry river bottom for two and a half million people to cross over in haste. And again, there are people, even some scholars who have tried really hard to prove that this was a natural phenomenon rather than a supernatural work of God. There was an Arab historian named Nawari who documented an earthquake which triggered a mudslide on December 7, 1267 AD near Demaya that dammed up the river for about 10 hours, he records. Then the famed British Jericho excavator John Garstang reported that on July 11, 1927, there was another earthquake that basically did the same thing, blocking the river for 21 hours. And so some scholars say uh, this event with Joshua was just another earthquake causing another mudslide. And of course, some agree that it was an earthquake and a mudslide, but God caused the earthquake to happen. So I, I guess that's supposed to be the best of both worlds. I'm just telling you, I don't buy it. Because first of all, neither of those earthquake events occurred during the spring flooding of the Jordan, which was exponentially wider and deeper and faster at this point than at its normal levels, which means those mudslides wouldn't have been able to touch the flow of water uh, from the river when Joshua and God's people were there in the story. Secondly, as detailed as Joshua is in reporting all of these events, he never mentions an earthquake. And thirdly, and most importantly, 
Verse 17 says that the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan, which is the only way two million people with children and belongings and carts and animals and tools are getting across that river if it's dry, hard-packed ground, right? If that river was simply dammed up by a mudslide and the waters receded, as they would in that kind of an event without any supernatural intervention, the last thing Joshua would have been reporting is people crossing over on dry ground because the bottom of that riverbed would have been a muddy, murky, swampy mess. But it wasn't. It was dry as a bone. How can that be? The same way the waters were piled up in a heap exactly as the Red Sea is described in Scripture when it was supernaturally parted by God because just as Jesus said what is impossible with man is possible with God Luke 18 27 you see the very thing these scholars in my opinion lack is the very thing Joshua is telling us we had better have if we're going to overcome the impossible in our own lives we must learn to walk by faith which admittedly is the scariest part of this whole deal it would have been really nice If when it was time to cross the Jordan, God had stopped the waters before his people ever got to the river, wouldn't it be nice when you're half a mile away, a mile away, see those waters piled up? But that's not what he did, not even close. Instead, these priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant had to walk into that raging river with the Ark before anything was going to happen. And it was only after they were in the river in the midst of the obstacle raging around them. It was only then that God worked the miracle. This is the flip side of the last point because yes, we need to wait on God before we can overcome the impossible without a doubt, but listen to me. Once he tells you to move, it's time to get up and get moving. And yet it's more than just moving, you see, because when God tells you to move, he means for you to get right into the thick of it and confront that obstacle as it stands, that impossible situation, that hopeless marriage, that broken relationship, that addiction that will not let go of you, that bad report from the doctor, the fear that haunts your sleep, the unforgiveness that is eating you alive. God says you face that impossible obstacle in your life. And don't you stop moving through it until you're on the other side because I am God and I am able and I have overcome that obstacle for you. And by the way, I am with you. But look, if you're going to do that, every step of the way will require you to walk by faith. He can lead you to the river, but he won't make you cross over it. You're going to have to wade into the water. Even though it's still raging all around you, you're going to have to get your feet wet, even though nothing has been dried up yet. You're going to have to confront that impossible obstacle in your life, even though the circumstance has yet to change at all. And that will require every ounce of faith that you can muster, and yet that's exactly what it takes to overcome the impossible in your life. John the Apostle wrote, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. What is it? Our faith. 
There's no way around it. Overcoming the impossible in your life will demand your faith because you can prepare your heart to confront that obstacle. You can wait on God before you to move toward that obstacle, but once he tells you to move, it's on you. You have to get up and confront that obstacle. You have to meet it head on. You have to wade into the turbulent waters and you can do so with great faith because God is with you. He goes before you and the moment you step into that impossible situation, his hand will move on your behalf as he begins to dry up those circumstances, as he begins to soften people's hearts, as he begins to break bondages, as he begins to mend broken relationships and bring peace where there has been nothing but turmoil so that you can move through through it to the other side of that obstacle. But still, there, there are many people I meet with over the years who've said to me, Pastor, you know, I've already been through so much. I'm not sure I can take one more obstacle. Well, I can certainly understand that. Walking by faith and overcoming obstacles is not easy work, but do you know? The Jordan River Valley lies in the shadows of the western mountains of Judah and Samaria and the eastern uh, Jordan Plateau, which rises over 3,900 feet. But the entire river valley itself is all below sea level. In the local Arabic language, it's referred to as the gore, which means the bottom. And yet within the gore of the Jordan River Valley, there lies a secondary valley, which is an additional 100 to 200 feet, even deeper then the valley floor, in the Arabic language, this deeper valley is called the Ezor, which means thicket. The Lord mentions it actually in Jeremiah 12:5, and many of the locals today refer to it today as the jungle of the Jordan. It's known as one of the most formidable landscapes on planet Earth. For this Ezor, this thicket is made up entirely of the harshest shoulder-high, tightly twisted, impossibly tangled, rank varieties of thorns and thistles known to man. And it is the very center of that thicket, in the very center, that the Jordan River twists and turns its way south toward the Dead Sea. In antiquity, during the time of our story here in Joshua, the Azor was a mile wide. And to top it all off, it was absolutely filled with wild and extremely dangerous animals, including wolves and wild boar. See, long before the priest or the people of God had to get into that river, after wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, first they had to navigate the Azor, not to mention being encamped there by the river once they made it there, contending with not only thorns and thistles and everything they owned in tow in that mess, they were under constant threat from wild animals, unable to see past your own tent to the water, for most of them, as thick as it was, two and a half million Jews with their livestock and belongings had to survive this jungle of the Jordan. There are historians and scholars who actually believe this was as big of a miracle as the actual crossing of the river. Before they ever got to the water, surviving this thicket, and at that, after 40 years in the wilderness, knowing that once they crossed the river, they had to go back through the other half of the thicket, and then they would be confronting the most heavily fortified and well-defended city in Canaan. We can't imagine how weary these people must have been, yet they were able to muster the faith to step into that raging torrent, believing that God would see them through it. You understand that's what it takes 
If you're going to overcome the impossible, you have to keep walking by faith no matter how difficult it is and no matter how long it takes because our God is with us every single step of the way. Some of you are facing some big obstacles in your life right now. Impossibly big obstacles. And if you let them, they will paralyze you to the point that you don't move forward anymore. And when you get stuck in one place long enough, I'm just telling you, it can begin to feel like your final destination. Listen to me, where you are right now is not your final destination. And you don't have to be bound by that obstacle anymore. I don't care how impossible it may be because God has already overcome it for you. Which means once you make sure your heart is aligned with the heart of Christ, and once you know that you're not getting ahead of Him, and He tells you to move, then get up from where you are and start walking by faith once again, even when you're weary and surrounded by impossible circumstances. You just keep walking through it by faith, because that is our victory that overcomes the impossible. Faith that God is with us, faith that He's gone before us, and faith that He will see us all the the way through it. You understand, you don't have to settle where you are. You don't have to settle behind obstacles in your life. You don't have to settle for anything less than all that God has prepared for you because by faith in Him, you can overcome even the impossible. Let's pray.